the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Friday marked one year since Doug Ford swept to power as the new Premier of Ontario. So how are the governing progressive conservatives doing one year later? They've passed what they say are an unprecedented number of bills. But they've also backtracked on a number of policy items after hearing blowback from voters and other politicians. Joining Libby Snymer for a panel discussion on Premier Ford's first year, NDP strategist Kim Wright, Liberal Bob Richardson, and Conservative John McEtitian. This Premier set out to call the House back. I'm not sure if he set a record, but he might have. Uh, he put in more legislation on the table, and he's passed more legislation in a quicker period of time than anybody can recall any former government doing. He certainly had a mandate to stop the craziness of the liberal overspending. The, the predominant opinion in Ontario is people wanted things to be better. They wanted change. They wanted to stop the reckless spending, but not the reckless spending if it involved them which is where it becomes interesting. And on the same token, the, the premier has been careful. Uh, if you So far, if you've yelled loud enough, he has backed away. And uh, so you could say he's listening. Uh, but for people who are very concerned or concerned the most about the budget and the deficit, um, he hasn't uh, made major strides in getting the government under control yet. So it's a, it's a real mixed bag. But certainly an activist uh, government that's taking on what it sees to be uh, the problem of the day. And uh, the jury's out on the long term what will happen with them. Bob, please respond to John. Well... Look, it has not been a good year for this government. Uh, the polls are uh, low. Uh, the premier has historically low approval rating for a premier at this time in his term, almost 20 points lower. Uh, they're in difficult shape almost in every demographic and every region in the province. And when it comes to spending, the truth of the matter is he is spending $14 million more a day than Kathleen Wynne did. It takes some sort of political genius to spend $14 million million dollars more a day than Kathleen Wynne and still uh, be on the hot seat for cutting programs. So it has not been a great government. They have no plan. There's been tons of chaos. He's got to make some changes over the next five months uh, in order to get his government back on track. Kim, your take? This is a government, yes, they went back in uh, uh, with uh, swearing in their ministers and hitting the ground running. Unfortunately, they stumbled right out of the gate because they kept adding things in. There was no reason to uh, cut the city of Toronto in half at the last minute. There was no reason to destabilize elections in multiple municipalities, except for the premier wanted to be the mayor uh, and not the premier. And he decided to take uh, take his licks where he could with the, with these governments. And what we've seen from the very beginning has been this uh, ideological, I want to exact revenge on or change this big 
big C change, but without actually thinking about what are the unintended consequences. They're not bringing people along for the ride. They haven't learned, frankly, who most of their cabinet members are, let alone who the rest of their 72-member caucus are. What do they want to do? What are things that matter to conservatives? Uh, Keeping in mind that a year and a half ago, at the start of last year, uh, you know, the, the the now premier was running for mayor of Toronto, not to be premier of the province. So he had to get a lot of up to speed. And he hasn't done that yet. He hasn't seemed to care to do that yet. And all he has done is continue to destabilize both on the bureaucratic side, but also uh, governments across across Ontario, municipal governments who have no idea what they can expect for uh, downloading and uploading conversations, what they can expect for uh, even their even their planning matters. All of these things, it just confuses and destabilizes uh, the politics of the day, for sure. John McIntyre, what would you like to leave us with on this? The last uh, 12 months, uh, it has been a very busy year for the government. Everyone would wish for uh, more plan and less chaos and better communication. And if it takes five months to have the next year ahead, uh, have us happy in 12 months with uh, the break, uh, it's well worth it. Bob? I tend to agree with uh, my friend here, actually. I said less chaos. Uh, uh, this government needs a plan. Uh, I think he's got to let his cabinet ministers do their job. Uh, and we need uh, less control from the center and uh, more more letting people do what they're supposed to be doing in government. It works best that way. Yeah, let's let's sort these things out. Let's be more forward thinking, actually collaborate with municipalities, actually collaborate uh, between ministers and the premier's office. And, you know, there is no monopoly on good ideas. So the, the premier's office should also look at how they collaborate with opposition uh, and stakeholders who may not have been traditionally on board and stakeholders who they've lost in the last year, bringing them back on and understanding what's been the problem. And I think uh, I think more planning, less chaos is a great uh, should be their next slogan. Strategist Kim Wright, Bob Richardson, and John McIntyre. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Doug Ford's win marked a huge loss for the Liberal Party of Ontario. After winning a majority government in 2014, Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals lost their official party status. They have seven seats in the legislature, and with two MPPs resigning, that number could go down to five, depending on the results of those by-elections. But insiders believe this is a time to renew the party. MPP Michael Coto is a former cabinet minister in the the Wynn government and one of two possible candidates for the leadership of the Liberal Party. Libby was joined by longtime Liberal strategist Patrick Gossage, along with Michael Coto. There's a big problem in Ontario today. I believe that uh, there's a lot of people who are in the middle, the majority of people that don't feel that they're represented by the NDP or by uh, the Conservatives. Uh, we seem to be uh, at the mercy of uh, radicalization on either side, where we see uh, people pushing us to the extreme left or to the extreme right, and people in the middle just want a government that can come in, that can focus on uh, the big issues like health care, education, the economy. Uh, they want to normalize uh, the way we do things, and they need stability in this province in order to continue to, uh, uh, to prosper. Your party got... A thrashing. I, I couldn't even use the word decimate because it's not <laughs> strong enough. What lessons have you learned from that? Some of the big lessons that I've heard from liberals across the province is that we forgot how to communicate with people. 
Uh, we didn't speak the same language as Ontarians in in a political sense. Uh, we always uh, people felt that uh, the party was arrogant, uh, that the people felt that they were being spoken uh, to rather than uh, a back and forth communication. People want to if they if they're part of a party or if they believe and subscribe to uh, liberal values, they want to stay in big policy decisions like that. Uh, the most important thing is figuring out how to regain the trust of Ontarians. And uh, we can see some of that early work being done today. I, our, our, our current leader, our interim leader, John Fraser, has been uh, incredible getting out there talking to people. Uh, he brings a sense of, uh, of humbleness into the position. And it's something that I think liberals, uh, after 15 years, need to, uh, to, to subscribe to and uh, really get back to the base and uh, build that coalition of the people in the middle. Patrick Gossage, do you have some advice for Michael Cotto? I think the mushy middle is attractive, but uh, it's not. I don't think the mushy middle, Michael, is a is a is a place to start with who you are. Um, I think people need to be reminded that this was not the evil win government. It was a government, as you say, that was out of touch. And I thought you described that extremely well. And that's exactly what happened. But the best thing you have going for you is Doug Ford, and uh, I don't think Doug's going to change radically. And I think also. We're probably going to have a, uh, some sort of recession. The, the economy can't keep pumping away that it has. And then, you know, Ford is going to be even in more trouble. So, I mean, in a way, you've got a runway that's paved by Ford. And, you know, um, he just, and his, his I love the, what, the, what somebody said, the U-turns he's been making means that trust is even more important than, than it was before. And, I mean, I think the trust has kind of evaporated in Ford. And um, you know, so I think the leadership race is going to take on a whole different, a whole different uh, importance in Ontario when people see that the next leader of the Liberal Party has a really good chance of becoming premier. It's it's amazing that uh, that uh, you know the Duck Ford, uh, what 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 you would call the environment that he's created, has still got some pretty strong supporters. And I think Ontario is a, a middle of the road province. I, I think it does not like the. Uh, Right wing, right wing fanaticism, or or the the sort of for the people, the sloganeering that that doesn't go anywhere. And I think what's going to be important for the liberals is not to make a lot of huge promises, since <laughs> as, as as Michael knows, promises are out of favor because they are being they've been so rarely kept, and they've you know the hopes have been raised by people like Doug Ford and uh, and even my friend uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, and not kept, and that is death in the in the uh, politics of today. So be careful, Michael. No big promises. Okay. Thank you for the advice. I think at the end of the day, the next election is going to be about restoring decency in this province. Yeah, there is a loss of decency when it comes to what Doug Ford is doing. When you turn your back on children, when you take away after-school programs, when you take away breakfast programs and lunch programs, when you take away autism services for children and complex special needs and make cuts to education. And then you make cuts into research and development for the future. What you're actually essentially doing at the end of the day is removing our ability to do well in the future. And we need to restore that decency back in Ontario because Ontarians are decent, hardworking people.
Liberal MPP Michael Cotto and Liberal strategist Patrick Gossage. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. As we get ready to officially begin summer, it means a change in skincare routines. It seems there's a veritable epidemic of sensitive skin out there, which Dr. Sandy Scott Nicky says is the result of too many products with too many ingredients. Dr. Scott Nicky is also an assistant professor and the author of Beyond Soap. She was welcomed by Libby Snymer in studio. There's always been a, a sort of a distrust of chemical filters. Well, actually, let's digress. There's two major types of filters, uh, sunscreen filters. One of them is uh, physical blocks. So that would be titanium zinc. So they're more, they basically sit on the skin. There's some absorption, but they reflect light. Um, and then there's chemical filters that are absorbed into the skin. And um, there's, I mean, the FDA came out in, in the U.S. in February basically saying that the 12 chemical filters that are available, we don't have enough science for. They're not, they're not banning them, but they want to have more information. They want the companies to give them more information. So that's caused some issues. Patients come in and ask about it. And then um, there was a published study just three weeks ago in JAMA, the Journal of American Medicine Association, looking at four chemical filters um, and the fact that they were absorbed into the body at higher concentrations than the FDA liked. The problem with the study was 24 people only. Wow, that's a small study. Small study. And they applied the sunscreens four times a day and they didn't go outside. So it's not using the sunscreen as you would, like you sweat, you, you know, you, uh, it evaporates, you, uh, you go swimming. So I, I don't know what to make of that. It's not a good study. It's about, it's sort of fear mongering. So I think, um, my response, and I've written this on my blog, on my website, it's what I tell my patients, it's what I do myself. I wear mineral sunscreen, which is zinc or titanium on a day to day basis. And then when I'm out in the sun in peak hours, like when the sun is really, your UV index is really high, like you're on a dock in Muskoka, you're in Jamaica on vacation, you're going to use the best that science has to offer, which is a combination of both mineral mineral and chemical sunscreens. Okay. So for most people, you know, how do we know what we're using? It, it, is the mineral sunscreen, it's is that on the, the bottle? It's, it's written, written on the bottle. So nowadays you'll see there's any number. And of course, you know, with all of this controversy, companies want to make money. So they're going to, they're going to, they're pumping out mineral sunscreens like left, right and center. So you can go in the pharmacy now and find any number of mineral sunscreens. It's basically, they're zinc and titanium based. So, it, and it's not the kind, because sometimes you see people with thick, thick white those paste. Are, those are paste. Yeah. So, and the nanotechnology of the zinc has really improved the fat, like the cos, cosmetic aspect. So it's not so opaque. And then they're often tinted. Um, so no, they're, they're, they're very readily, uh, labeled. It's the other sunscreens will, will say, you know, mixed or chemical filter, or they may not say anything. If they don't say anything, it's not mineral based and it's usually broadband UVA, UVB. And that's chemical. So most of yeah. the popular brands would be chemical. Most you- of the popular brands are, are chemical because they're better sunscreens. Now, of course, if you read some of the stuff from the FDA, they're like, if a zinc is a very good sunscreen, um, it, it covers both UVA and UVB wavelength. But a lot of people don't like it because it's cosmetically unacceptable and it melts off. We don't know the stability. Like there's just, it's a very, it's a quagmire now. Um, so I, again, I go back to what I tell patients and what I do myself. I use mineral sunscreens for day to day. I have one on today that's tinted, kind of as my makeup too. And then um, when I'm, if I'm going to go walk my dog at 
one o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to put on a hat. I'll probably put on a hat and a cover. That's the other thing. I think I was away in, in um, Asia and uh, umbrellas. Somebody needs to design a really funky, fun umbrella. You don't need sunscreen. Well, the kind that comes out of your head. I've seen those. That too, but you can wear, a, you know, you can wear a hat. You can, they can get hot though. So you can have uh, cover-ups, but umbrellas are great. What would you like to leave us with as we head into the summer? There's so much controversy now with sunscreens. And as dermatologists, like we have a hard enough time trying to get people to use them. And I think that you've got to look again. We have to always look to the science. And the science is that sunscreens help decrease melanoma skin cancer, which is the most deadly form. And the study came out of Australia. It, it was a 10-year, with a 10-year extension, 20-year study looking at incidents. Patients who used sunscreen every day and not indiscriminately had a lower incidence of melanoma. And in, in Australia, one in four people get melanoma. So uh, there's no dispute that it helps. If you have an issue with it, use mineral sunscreen, use zinc, use titanium, cover up. No kids under two should be running around without UPF clothing on. It's, it's, you can just buy the, the shirts and the, and the pants. Um, and if you're, if you're really, uh, concerned, um, seek shade. That was dermatologist Dr. Sandy Scott Nicky, author of Beyond Soap. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This past Thursday marked 75 years since D-Day, when 14,000 Canadians began their assault against German forces on Juneau Beach in France on June 6, 1944, as part of Operation Overload. After a day of fighting, 359 Canadian soldiers would lose their lives. This is considered the beginning of the end of World War II. And this anniversary is particularly poignant because it is likely the last major anniversary where a sizable contingent of veterans will be able to participate because most of them are now in their mid-90s. Joining Libby for a very special segment on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, Captain Martin Maxwell with the RAF Glider Pilot Regiment. My D-Day started not on the 6th, but on the 5th because the general came in and said, boys, this is it. We have trained for it for ages. Remember the firebombing of London done on purpose to kill as many civilians as possible. It's our turn. And the six gliders lined up. I was piloting one of them, and we carried between us about 140-odd specially trained commandos. Our target was Pegasus Bridge in Normandy. So the Germans couldn't send reinforcements and our troops wouldn't have to fight on two fronts. So late in the afternoon, as it was getting dark, we took off and we had to capture Pegasus Bridge and hold them. Unfortunately for us, we were not allowed to use revolvers or guns because it would have woken up the nearby garrisons. So at the age of 19 or 20, we had to use our knives and our bayonet. For years after, I, I, I thought of it and I had real trouble doing it, but I know we had to do it. And did you lose colleagues? Yes, unfortunately we did. And I, I, I want to, if I may, go back when I visited 
uh, Holland two years ago, and I went to the cemetery, and I saw many of those who fought with me and D-Day lying there after we fought at a battle of Arnhem. But as I walked around the cemetery, a man came and he had three children with him. And he said, I brought my three children, eight to 14, to show them what sacrifices were needed and made so that we Dutch and others have their freedom. As I walked further, I came, the Dutch children had put flowers and thank you. I came to a grave. Written on the gravestone were these amazing words. When you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrows, we gave our todays. And that brought me up to date. I look at the world today and I see mosques, churches, synagogues attacked, people murdered just for hate. And I often wondered if these young men would get up and look at the world today, I know what they would say. What the hell have you done with the tomorrows we gave you? But I have hope because I speak a lot to universities, high schools, and I say to them, there's so few of us left. So we'll transfer the torch of freedom to your generation. Hold it high so others can see how precious it is. And if ever you're called on to fight for it, do it with everything you have. Because once it is lost, it's almost impossible to get back. I've been speaking for 30 years, both about the Holocaust, but especially about military career. I find that my son's generation were not that interested Now, when I speak, like in Centennial College or universities or York private school, the interest is enormous. Over a thousand students turn out, and they are particularly interested. And I get so many emails from them thanking me for, you know, and telling them the background. And the other day, I was walking somewhere, and a young man came over to me and said, you spoke to my class 15 years ago, and I'm a lawyer now, and I always wanted to tell you how much I appreciated your speech, because now I understand all the sacrifices were made that I and others can live in freedom. So I'm very optimistic. I have spoken for 30 years in so many countries, and thank you. I was so happy. You have chosen Canada. It really is a great, great country. Captain Martin Maxwell on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Cheryl in Toronto phoned to talk about her own air travel experience, not unlike one we highlighted on Fight Back of two wheelchair-bound travelers who were stuck in the Vancouver airport for hours. The same thing happened to me with Air Canada two years ago when I got home. I was dumped in a hallway. Um, the wheelchair first hadn't been arranged. 
I had to wait. Then I was dumped in a hallway and told, someone will pick you up here. Nobody ever came. Um, I had been going through airports in Europe. And the problem is, in Canada, the airline is responsible for the disabled passenger. In Europe, the airport itself was responsible. And I was assigned at each airport a person. Um, I was treated with respect and dignity. I never waited. One airport in Switzerland even had a lounge for the disabled passengers where I was offered food and water. Um, it, it was just a completely different experience. And nobody ever came for me in that hallway. I was in tears. I was in agony and pain from traveling all day. It was just, and you, I couldn't go anywhere. My luggage was downstairs, you know, circling, circling. And once the airport knew about it, they got a hold of Air Canada yes. who finally sent somebody. But it, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, even when we left for the trip, we had three wheelchairs. We almost missed our plane, and we were there four hours early because Air Canada just couldn't get their act together with the wheelchairs and, and my mom's walker and everything. Lori in Oakville phoned to voice her opinion on the provincial New Democrats. I couldn't believe that Nazi remark either. I, uh, I don't know what's the matter with the NDP they seem to oppose anything that anyone else is for, and all they come up with is insults and, and this. This is atrocious. And yet they never had, they don't agree with anybody on anything, and they have nothing to suggest to help out. It just, uh, it just sort of really throws me. I don't understand them at all. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. A lot of great calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dan in Vaughn, who is outraged that MPPs are on a five-month summer break. Five months of no government. That's their job, is to sit, to make laws, legislation. And what are they doing? You know, we're paying them. Uh, I wish I could get five months of uh, go fishing and, uh, you know, this is this is... When my father was alive, and this was under uh, Davis government, they all complained about two months. And here we are, five months. They can, what are we going to be, another 15 years? It'll be nine months? <laughs> I, I think the working people look at this and they just say, this is crazy. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. <laughs>